are going to embark upon studying the final five of the Ten Commandments. For those of you who have been here all year, you know that we began the year with the first five of the Ten Commandments, uh, four of which are designed to be principles for living a life of wholeness with with God our Father. Uh, But now, we're going to turn our attention to the final five commandments, uh, which really are, are, as we saw in that video, uh, a, a law code that has reverberated down through history. But, but before we begin on this journey of five weeks together, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. One of the questions is, why should we study the final five at all? Why is it important to go back to the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy and, and, and study these, these five commandments? Well, Romans 13.9 gives us a really good indication of why we should study the final five Uh, commandments. And this is what Romans 13, 9 says. It says, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So the Apostle Paul, writing in Romans, brings us and and fast-forwards the Ten Commandments into the New Testament for us and tells us that there is a principle of Christian living, which is to love your neighbor and yourself, and love being the the thing that fulfills the law, says this principle fast-forwards right into our lives today. So, So these commandments, they're not just for that time, they're for this time as well. Now, here's the second question you might ask. Okay, so why do I care about fulfilling the law? Why do I care about about looking at at Ten Commandments in the the Old Covenant? Uh, We're under grace now. Why should I look there? Why don't I just look look to the New Testament? Well, there's something going on with the Ten Commandments, and I want to take us back there, and I know we talked about it about four months ago, which means it could be out of sight, out of mind. The laws that God gives us, the commands that he gives us in, in this top ten, if you will, They're principles for living in a healthy way with God, and they're principles for living in a healthy way with others. But they really are not just a set of rules. We must understand this. The Ten Commandments are not simply a set of rules. The Ten Commandments are things that flow out of the very character of God. God wasn't sitting in heaven one day and says, hmm, I think that I will arbitrarily decide what is right and what is wrong. And as I decide what is right and what is wrong, I will then go tell Moses. So Moses can tell other people what is right and what is wrong. God didn't do things that way. God's commandments flow out of his character. They flow out of his nature. They're who God is, and that's what makes them good. The law of love is a reflection of God's character. So Christians, as Christians, we are challenged to emulate the character of God our Father. So for every single one of these last five commandments, there is a character piece about who God is. The the things that he prohibits are prohibited because they violate his nature. They violate his character. God just didn't say it because he decided one day that this would arbitrarily be good and this would arbitrarily be bad. He was saying these things because they reflected the perfect perfection and the holiness with which he already lives. Now, we know that God lives in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He exists in Trinity. He exists in relationship. And so the nature of these commandments are to not violate things that he would never violate. We're to emulate his character. And when we do that, not only do we emulate the character of God, but the the payoff of following these commandments is that our relationships get better 
and we overcome the fallen state of humanity in which we live. So what's the first one of these final five commandments? Well, it's Deuteronomy 5.17. You shall not murder. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Got it. Let's head to lunch, right? We got it. You shall not murder. You might be thinking to yourself, why should I even think about murder? I'm not going to murder anyone. Well, the interesting thing about the commandment not to murder is, once again, if we look at it from a character trait of God, and we look at it from, from who he is, the assignment not to murder has something to do with goodness in God's character. The, the assignment not to kill has something to do with who God is. But what's interesting is the New Testament authors and, or the New Testament apostles and Jesus himself expound upon this particular commandment because they want to tell us that this commandment not to murder has so much more to do with what our character is and who we are to be. And in essence, the New Testament is going to argue with this commandment, Jesus specifically and the Apostle John, and we'll be reading some words from them in just a moment, is trying to tell us that in its most literal sense, you might not break this law. But by your attitude and behavior, you can technically break it. So, so the New Testament's going to up the ante for us. It's going to show us something about this law that, 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 that pushes us further into the character of God. The Apostle Paul has already pushed us further into the character of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. The commandment to love is, is supreme. It's very important. So this is what I want you to do this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 John. 1 John, not the uh, Gospel John. 1 John chapter 3. We'll be starting there. And then if, if you have enough time in, in, in the next few moments, I want you to also turn to Matthew chapter 5. Because both the Apostle John and the Lord Jesus are going to expound upon this commandment, do not murder. Because in essence, if we were to just look at that in its most literal sense, we would be missing the character of God, the aspect of God's character that we are supposed to emulate. So, so you say, how do I break a law without technically breaking it? Well, let me give you this example. I have a really, really close friend who, 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 who comes to my house on a regular basis. And this close friend has access, like some really close friends might, might have in your life, to my refrigerator and to my cupboards. They, they, they know that when they come to my house, they can open the fridge. Anything is available to them. They can get in the cupboard. Anything is available to them. But Gina and I have noticed something over the course of the years as this person comes into our house, that, that they will go and they will make themselves a ham sandwich and, and, and might just leave you one slice of one quarter of an ounce of ham left in your fridge, w which would really not be good for even a half a sandwich, maybe a quarter of a sandwich if you fold it correctly. Or, or th they may go to the cupboard and, and not wanting to eat all of the pretzels might leave you two pretzels in the bag. You see, there's this principle that this person is operating under that they should not eat all of our food because that would be disrespectful to go and eat all of it. But they are going into the cupboard and into the fridge, and every time they're with us, they eat almost all of it, <laughs> leaving us with virtually nothing to the point that you should just throw it away because it's not worth having anymore. So they have this law in their minds. The law is don't eat all of Matt and Gina's food. But technically, they're leaving us with nothing. They're, they're literally not breaking the law, but technically they are. The New Testament is going to show us that in its most literal sense, we will probably not murder somebody. There's probably not many murderers sitting out here today. 
But technically, by our attitude and behavior, we can still break this law. And that's why it's important that we study it. Are you in 1 John chapter 3? Thinking about a ham sandwich, here we go. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 and following. The apostle John says, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we passed from death to life because we love one another. Catch this. Whoever does not abide, whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. There it is. You can, in the most literal sense, not break the law as it regards to murder, but by your attitude and behavior, you can technically break it. If you succumb to the spirit of murder, if you have hate residing in your heart, so much so that that there is a sense in you that that person's life is no longer as valuable as yours. You're, 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 You're being brought in, if you will, by the spirit of murder. And the really scary thing is twofold here, according to John the Apostle. One, whoever does not love abides in death. Huh, don't want to abide in death. But two, those who hate are murderers and they don't have eternal life abiding in them. That's tough. Those are strong words, really strong words. But guess what? Remember I told you to turn to Matthew 5? Jesus is about to make it worse. Here we go. Matthew 5, verse 21 and following, as the New Testament interprets the the command not to murder. Jesus says, verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and, there's, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So John gives us the theology of do not murder. Jesus gives us the specifics of do not murder. You know, we had it out there if we just read 1 John chapter 3, because John just says you cannot hate. And that's, that's easy, right? Well, I don't hate anyone. Thank you, Pastor Matt. But, but, but by, by that standard, we can arbitrarily decide what hate is. Isn't that nice? Isn't it nice when we can sort of arbitrarily say, well, I don't hate anyone. I act like it, but I don't really. But Jesus then says, okay, well, let me make it very specific for you. If you harbor anger, you're in trouble. If you are given over to insulting another human being because of that anger, you're in real trouble. And if you get to the point where you loathe a person, you fool. If you get to the point where you despise Another human being. Ooh, once again, just as John said, Jesus says hell of fire. John says you don't have eternal life living in you. Ooh, yuck. John gives us the theology. Jesus gives us the specifics. 
Why? Why is Jesus and John so strong on this principle? And I don't even have time to take you to the book of James today. James, in James chapter 2 implies that if we even show favoritism towards other human beings, we're operating in the spirit of murder. Wish I had time to take you there this morning. I don't. But, but the fact of the matter is this. Love, according to 1 John chapter 3, according to John chapter 17, love is the fundamental principle of God's people because that is the fundamental principle of God's nature. Therefore, to have any part of the spirit of murder, any part of a spirit that devalues the life of another person is to be guilty of the murder itself. The spirit of murder resides in the fallen human heart. But here's the good news for each one of us today. That anger, that, that loathing, that insulting nature, that bitterness, that hate, it can be replaced by God's spirit. In fact, it should be replaced by God's spirit. A spirit that results in us loving others in spite of the fallen human inclination to give in to the spirit of murder. So what I'd like to do with our few minutes together today is, is to, to show you two D words that, that, that sort of sum up both 1 John chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 5 in terms of the spirit of murder. And then what I'd like to do is talk about the spirit of love, the spirit that, that is supposed to be replaced with in the people of God. You following me? All right, let's do it. First is 1 John chapter 3, disdain. And John uses this example of Cain and Abel. How many of you know that story, the story of Cain and Abel? Genesis chapter 4. For those of you who might not be well-versed on, on the first part of the Bible, Cain and Abel were the first two brothers. And, and, and they, in Genesis chapter 4, bring an offering to God to show their fidelity to the Lord. Abel brings the firstborn of his flock and it says that Cain brought some of the fruit of the ground. He was a farmer. His brother was a herdsman. And, and as, best we can, as best we can understand, the, 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 the problem was, because we find out that God liked Abel's offering, did not appreciate Cain's. And as best we can surmise is that Abel brought the first of his flock, and, and Cain brought some of the produce of the ground. In essence, Abel showed real fidelity to God. Cain was sort of doing some obligatory religious thing, okay? It says God did not regard the offering of Cain. So the Bible says that Cain gets angry. His face is, is downcast. He's upset. And God comes to Cain and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Don't let it master you. And Cain ignores God and goes out and kills his brother Abel. See, this is the warning that John is giving you and I. He's giving us a warning about having hate in our heart. Now, let me ask you this question. What personal wounding had Abel inflicted on Cain? None. What personal thing had Abel done to warrant Cain's disdain? And the answer is nothing. It's an impersonal hate. It's very personal insofar as Cain wants to kill Abel because he's upset, but it's, it, it's very impersonal in that Abel has done nothing specifically to hurt Cain. 
all Abel did was make Cain feel insecure. And he began to be disgusted by his brother. He didn't understand, he didn't like, he didn't appreciate who Abel was and what he had done. And since he didn't understand, since he didn't like, since he didn't appreciate who Abel was and what Abel has done, Cain deduced that Abel's life was less valuable than his. He dehumanizes his brother to the point that he would kill him. He dehumanizes him. He doesn't understand, therefore, he must do something about it. This is the spirit of murder. You know, there wasn't even a personal injury that had been done. It was a concept. It was a, not, it was a misunderstanding. It was, I don't get him and why his offering is regarded. It was a jealousy thing. It was an, a misunderstanding. But still, he hates enough to kill. Now, this spirit in its most innocent form is the little rascals and the He-Man woman haters club. All right? How many of you have ever seen that Little Rascals episode? It's even in the new one, right? The new movie that one new one's 20 years old. But yeah, all right? So the He-Man Woman Haters Club. We don't understand women. Uh, we, 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 don't, we don't quite like what they do. Therefore, Spanky and Alfalfa and the guys are going to get together and form the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Right? That's a, that, I guess that's, a, that's, that's sort of in its most innocent form, the spirit of disdain. Now, it's interesting, I was looking this up this week. I wanted to see what, it came to my mind. I thought, I gotta hop on YouTube and I gotta watch this. And I, and I bring it up and the video has been posted and this was the tag underneath the video. Catch this. It said, a board meeting at the average Christian college. Let that sink in for a minute. Didn't John just say, do not be surprised if the world hates you? Right? Somebody was using that to slam Christians, saying that we're somehow backwards. Now, I went to a wonderful Christian college that was wonderfully affirming and loving towards women. I don't know what that person's experience was. I have no idea why they would write that kind of message under the He-Man Woman Haters Club. But I want to tell you today, that's the issue that's at stake. And that's why First uh, John, the Apostle John, he brings up this concept. He says, listen, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if you garner the disdain of others. Don't be surprised. With that said, you don't get to live there. You don't get to respond in kind. You don't get to hate as well. That's what this entire passage is about. He says, don't be surprised if people respond to you like Cain responded to Abel. Don't be surprised. But guess what? If you're out in the field with Cain, you don't get to pick up your shepherd's hook and cock him over the head. That's what's going on here. So John says, little children, guess what? That's what he often refers to people as. You are, you are going to be hated. You don't get to respond in kind. You have passed from death to life. You don't get to have disdain for other people. The enemy loves to play on our insecurities. He loves us to lump people into a group. He loves us to get together and say, let's hate those people together. He loves us to have disdain for others. Jesus came to this earth and had disdain for nobody. Think about the fight that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Think about the, the, the genesis of that fight that he had with the religious elite. Jesus had the audacity to esteem sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. But the power and the influence of the Pharisees resided in the fact that they could look at the people of the land and say, hey, let's get together, let's all follow the law, and let's hate those people together. 
Let's have disdain for the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners. Let's disdain those people. Let's hate those people. And Jesus went and had dinner with them. Jesus didn't come with a disdain for those who were clearly enemies of God. They were clearly people who were violating God's love and his law and his principles, yet Jesus didn't allow himself to hate these people. Once again, remember why I'm saying disdain here. We're going to move on in a little bit to, to, to the concept of, of complete and utter, utter disgust for people. But, but, but this disdain, is, it's not present in Jesus. He loves all people. The enemy wants you to get down as Christians and play in the mud. Because then you're violating the law of love. And then you have no influence in this broken world. He wants you to look at people or groups or individuals who have truly caused you no harm and hate them. The enemy would love for you to hate people you've never met. He'd love you to view someone as less than human. He'd be thrilled if you treat somebody differently or with disgust because of the color of their skin, the nation of their birth, the sins they've committed, their amount of education, or the money in their checkbook. He would love for you to disdain somebody. He'd love for you to feel like they're not as valuable as you are because you know what's right, you do what's right, you have what's right, and they don't. That's the issue here. We as Christians who have the Spirit of God living in us must not get caught up in that web of hate. We must not get caught up in the vice of disdain for people or people groups. Uh, a while back, I, I had opportunity to sit down to dinner with a bunch of different people, and as I, as I grabbed my plate and was heading back towards uh, the table, I realized that I would be sitting next to somebody who was very, very uh, progressive-minded in, in a political sense, a and they were somebody who also had real questions and concerns about the Church of Jesus Christ and, and, and maybe whether or not it was, it was going to be in their future. And so I sat down and I remember thinking, oh, oh dear, I, I, I really pray that I don't say anything to uh, offend this person and, and, and drive them further from the Lord or, or, or from, from the truth. And so naturally, within two minutes, we start talking about the national anthem protests in the NFL. And I thought, oh gosh, we're in trouble. Because obviously this person and their political background, they could not be further over here. And to be honest with you, I, I understand that there's inequality in this country, but, but I really don't like people kneeling for the national anthem. I feel like there's other ways to protest, okay? So, so I'm over here and this person's over here. And, and here we're sitting at a table the week after about 13 Browns players took a knee to pray during the national anthem. And here my whole thought is, what am I going to do in this moment? I could get on my soapbox, I could get on my high horse, I could fight a battle right now. And I looked at that person and we were talking about it and I said, you know what? I said, I don't understand it all, but I guess if you're, gonna, if you're gonna promote unity in our country, what better way to do it than praying on your knees to the only one who can make a change? And all of a sudden, we had this beautiful conversation for the next hour. Now, I could have gone into that arena, if you will, and showed no esteem and no respect and, and pounded my fist and told those people what was right. But what would that have done? I listened. I, 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 I intently 
esteemed the person sitting across the table from me. And we had a wonderful time together. See, I I bring that anthem protest thing up to you because I have seen nothing animate people like this recently, or a few things. And I want to ask us as Christians, what are we yelling for? What are we fighting with people for? Aren't we getting down in the mud like the enemy would like us to and and, and putting our feet on the ground and, and getting into a fight that matters not? We are supposed to be people who show disdain for no one and esteem for all. That's what our Lord does. Why are we people who, who, who have to be heard and have to share our opinion and have to put people to rights all the time? Why do we have disdain for people who don't view the world the way we do, who don't experience the world the way we do? Why do we allow ourselves to get drugged down in the mud of disdain? We are at a place in history and time where everybody is a troll, a take, and an argument. Not so among the people of God. When we pray, we pray with one voice for one cause to the one God that all may know that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we are here to do. Don't allow yourself to have disdain for other people. Don't allow yourself to be seen as someone with hate or anger or bitterness in your heart. Don't give it a foothold, folks. We are supposed to be above culture, not in the midst of culture. Our God is greater than anything going on in our world today. And we are to be people of love and esteem in every situation. Ask the Holy Spirit if you, feel, if you harbor bitterness and anger and hatred and disdain in your heart. Holy Spirit, clean that out in Jesus' name. I don't want to be that person. I don't need to be right. I don't need to fight the battle. I don't need to troll that person. I don't need to have that argument. I don't need to post that. I can let that go. I, I don't need people to know that I'm upset. Because we have a cause in this world. And our cause is to love that all men might know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't get caught up. Don't be some tool of some political party. Don't do it. I say that to those of you on the far right, the far left, somewhere in the middle, and some of you don't even know what those are. (laughs) Don't be some tool of some political party. We belong to a kingdom, folks, not a nation. We belong to the Lord, folks, and we have work to do in this world. Don't get dragged down into disdain. Show people that you have eternal life living in you. Don't feel the need to be judgmental and critical. Leave it with the Lord. Show esteem for all people. We live in a time of reckless disdain and hate. We need to be a church of reckless love and esteem. Reckless love and esteem. Now, if you thought that was important, here comes Jesus. The second thing that we must not get involved in, and if you want to turn back in your Bibles to Matthew 5 now, if you've been in John chapter 3, the second place that we not, cannot stay and live is the place of detesting other human beings. Now, now I, I make this a different word, and, and I'm bringing up a different point here, because in, in 1 John chapter 3, we were having disdain towards people who had done us no personal harm. Now Jesus is talking about people who have certainly done us personal harm. Somebody that we have interacted with who has certainly done something to raise our anger, raise our insults, raise our loathing. 
This is somebody who's really messed with us. And Jesus takes it now to that level and says, you are not allowed to detest them one second more. Not one second. You are not allowed to live in unforgiveness for one second more. And I got to be real with you this morning. As a pastor and one who hears so many stories of the people in my congregation, I have seen what some of you have been through. I have met some of the people who have hurt you. And it is hard at times for me not to detest them for you. Some of you have come through a lot of horrible things and had horrible things done to you by people who were acting horribly. It's hard for me not to have my ire and my anger uh, for you over them. So when I say this to you this morning, that, 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 that the Lord is speaking through his word that you cannot live in that place of detesting that person or those persons any longer, I'm not trying to say that to you as some type of, of, of far-off, mean-spirited moral authority. I know how hard that would be for some of you in this place if you were to stop detesting that person. I, I can understand that. And it's so easy to get into this for ourselves or on behalf of others. I was driving to church this morning. It was the most incredible thing. I'm driving to church, and for some reason, my mind goes to a, a, an event that just happened like a month and a half ago. Somebody ha ha had come that doesn't attend Victory Life, and they'd come to visit the church on a whim. And then they approached one of my staff members and criticized them in the one time that, that we've seen them in, in a long, long time. And I was sitting there driving in my car, and all of a sudden I'm like, that jerk. I could not believe what they said. I would love to have five minutes with that piece of person. And I, and I didn't think bad words, don't worry. And I'm, I'm thinking... Ooh, I would love to just tell them what I think of them and how valuable they are to the world. And the Lord said, uh-huh. That's what you're preaching on this morning, dummy. <laughs> and I repented right there on Hudson or on Graham Road. Lord, forgive me. Look where my mind is going right now. And that was on behalf of another person let alone the injuries that people have done to us. But, but remember, John gives us the theology of what Jesus says here. John gives us the theology of no anger, no insults, and no loathing. John says, remember, folks, you've passed from death to life. You've passed from darkness to light. You have received mercy, therefore show mercy. You want to know something that gets Jesus really angry is when Christians live in unforgiveness. If you were to do a word study in the Gospels of, of, of not forgiving and the results of Christians not forgiving, it's not pretty. It's not pretty because we have been forgiven so much. It's such an important concept that the Lord's Prayer has that line about forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us it's reciprocal and it's symbiotic and we have no right to harbor our anger our insults or our bitterness we have a lord who hung on the cross for his enemies and said father forgive them
they know not what they do. So as hard it is, as it is for us to get out of the spirit of detesting people, the spirit of murder and unforgiveness, Jesus says you have no right to live there. And that's why as Christians we have to release people. We have to operate in a spirit of release. Even if this person has not asked forgiveness, even if this person goes on hurting in different ways, even if this person deserves every bit of our ire, those who have passed from death to life, those who have received mercy, must release them. Must. If you count Jesus Christ as Lord, you have to release that person. So I ask you today, who are you still extracting or exacting your pound of flesh from? Who is it that you will not release today? It could just be your anger and your thought life and and, and things going on internally and you just can't get over it. But it could be that you are, in a literal sense, still trying to injure that person with your insults, with your loathing, with talking bad about them, with making snide remarks, with reminding people how much they've hurt you, taking something from them that they should have, When are you going to release them? When does that person ever get released? Not because they're a good person, but because you have a good Lord. Not because they don't deserve it, but because none of us deserve his forgiveness. We as Christians must not operate in a place of exacting our pound of flesh from people forever. We have to release them. And we have to be people who are open to reckless reconciliation. You say, do I always have to reconcile with someone? Well, certainly not. There's going to be people who won't reconcile with you. There's going to be nothing that you can do. And for those of you who have released and tried to reconcile, you're off the hook this morning. But Jesus didn't stop with those who have hurt us. He went on to those who we have hurt. He says then, after he says no anger, no insults, none of that stuff, then he says, oh, by the way, if you are standing at the altar, if you're standing in the house of God and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your offering there, go home and try to reconcile and make it right. First be reconciled, then come back and call yourself a person of God. Who have you hurt? Who detests you? Who, who, who is it that, that you have got down in the mud with and hurt? Well, they started it. Hold on a minute. Who is it? Who is it that, that, that you have not made every effort to reconcile with? Because you've passed from death to life. Once again, we stand in the shadow of a Lord who has done everything to reconcile his enemies to him everything. 
if we are truly to operate in the law of love, we must recklessly go after reconciliation with those who have been our enemies, with those who we have hurt or who have hurt us. Now you say, that, that's fine. So you leave the altar, you go try to reconcile. I want you to make one more exegetical point about this statement that Jesus makes about leaving the altar. Jesus was speaking to a crowd in Galilee. The altar of the Lord was in the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus says if you are at the altar 100 miles from home and you remember that there's disunity, that there's problems, that there's hurt that's been caused and you're in the middle of that mud, Walk home 100 miles. Be reckless in terms of your willingness to reconcile. And then walk back 100 miles. Back to the house of God. That is what is required of us. The Lord Jesus needs his people to operate in esteem. The Lord Jesus needs his people to operate in release. And the Lord Jesus needs his people to operate in reconciliation because that is the character of God. And when we emulate the character of God, we squash out the spirit of murder. And we have the Holy Spirit that lives in us and raises the spirit of love. Folks today, will you allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in your heart that only he can do? Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, these are not abstract concepts today. They are so real to your people. Lord, people, people groups, situations, they have been brought to mind for just about everybody in this church today. And Lord, we want to be your people. We want to do things your way. We want to honor you because we want people to know who Jesus is. But Lord, if we operate in the spirit of murder, we are so far from the place that we want to be. Now, you may be in this place this morning and you might say, Pastor Matt, I, I, I can truly say that there is nobody that I hate. Nobody that I wish we were dead. And if that's you, I'm, I'm glad of that this morning glad of that but it just might be possible even without wanting the death of someone else in your heart that there have been people or people groups that you have disdained and you need the Lord to release you from that harbored anger today and it would be a big deal for you to take a step of faith, whether it be to kneel or come to an altar or to stand where you're at, just, just to say, God, I really need you to do something 
in me today. Because I am sort of the person that Pastor Matt was describing. And I need to be a person of esteem. Perhaps you're in this place today and you have been exacting your pound of flesh through anger, through insults, through loathing. You've been consumed with trying to make someone pay for how they've hurt you. Oh, child of God, release them today. When you release them, you will be made free. Got to release them. Do it today. Don't wait. Pass from death to life. Finally, you may be in this place. And whether or not you think they're justified, you know that you've hurt somebody. Whether or not you think that you did what they said you did, they feel like you did it. Will you travel today the hundred miles back to Galilee? Will you go as far as you need to go to make things right because of how far the Lord went to make things right with you? So today, because of the personal nature of these particular prayer requests, and because it's quite possible that everybody on my prayer team and in leadership could have something to do with one of these questions. What I'm going to ask today is that if it's you today in one of those areas, whether it be esteem, whether it be release, or whether it be reconciliation, that you need the Holy Spirit to do something in you. Instead of coming to the front and have somebody pray for you, I'd like us to just, as a community of faith, say, Lord, we want to emulate your character and we need you to do something for us today. And with every head bowed and every eye closed, this is not spectator hour, would you just stand right where you're at today? Just stand right now. I need the Lord to do something in me. I need the Lord to do something in me. I want to esteem. I need to release. I need to go the hundred miles to Galilee to reconcile. So many of you, praise the Lord, just an openness to what the Holy Spirit can do. Just an openness to what the Holy Spirit can do. Thank you, Lord.